Understanding China has become more difficult than ever, yet also more important than ever. Whether the U.S. and China are rivals, partners, or a mix of both, effective policy will only be as good as the information on which it is based. My name is Scott Kennedy, and I'm the senior advisor and trustee chair in Chinese business and economics at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also have had the privilege of being one of the few American scholars who has traveled back and forth between Washington and Beijing in recent years. I'm a firm believer that field research, direct observation, talking, and listening to Chinese perspectives must be a part of our toolkit to understand the People's Republic of China. So join me as I speak with Chinese leaders from business, government, and academia, and foreigners who have spent many years living and working in China. What makes China tick? Where is the country going? What connects us? And what divides us? We'll dive into all of that and more on this podcast. Welcome to China Field Notes. I'm delighted to welcome to China Field Notes Roberta Lipson, the founder of United Family Healthcare. She's had a front row seat to China for over 40 years, arriving in the 1970s and making China her home. Since that, she is not only the founder of United Family Healthcare, she's also the vice chair of New Frontier Health, the vice chair of AmCham China, and a director of the U.S.-China Business Council. She started her firm, Chindex, in 1981, which later became United Family Healthcare, which now has 11 hospitals and almost 20 clinics throughout China. In 2016, United Family Healthcare was rated the most trusted healthcare brand in China by the China Business Journal. She has received numerous awards and accolades for her work as a business person, for providing public health in China, and for being an important bridge in U.S.-China relations. In the spirit of full disclosure, my family has benefited directly from your efforts, Roberta. We lived in China multiple times. We had the whole gang there, which is my wife and my three boys, in 2008 and nine. And my boys went there to United to Beijing United Family Hospital for their health care, for checkups when they were sick. I later went when I had the flu and I'm still here. So something went right. So welcome to China Field Notes. Thanks so much. It's an honor to be here and also an honor to have been able to service your family. For sure. For sure. Now, just as a reminder, Roberta, the purpose of China Field Notes is to give the Washington policy community and others a view of China from on the ground, both from Chinese as well as those like yourself who live in China and have seen China up close, who have a sense of its people, its politics, its economy, its view on the world. There's a lot of podcasts that are folks talking to people in Washington with other people in Washington, and we want to get outside that frame. So if it's okay with you, we'll launch into the conversation. We'll go in a variety of directions and, and who knows where we'll end up, but I know it'll be fun and I'm really appreciative of you spending time with us. Let's go back in time to when you first went to China and if you could tell everybody a little bit about how you became interested in China and what was it like living in China during your first few years there? It was super fun and full of um, opportunities to learn new things. But if you go back to how I first began to be interested in China, I came from a pretty homogeneous um, suburb of New York City where everybody was from a similar background and similar socioeconomic level, et cetera. And so when I got to university, I wanted to learn 
as much as possible about the rest of the world that I hadn't experienced yet and couldn't get more different than um, learning about China. So I started college in 1972. And as we all know, that was sort of a watershed year about being um, able to know something about China. And I was immediately captivated by the study of China, Chinese history, and soon after that, pursued Chinese language studies. Um, and after devoting seven years to those things, I was ready to get to China in any way possible. When I first got to China, I was among 1979, among, you know, the very first group of Americans to be able to go there and spend time there. I was hired by a trading company who was interested and willing to bring what China needed and export what America needed from China. And I had the opportunity to explore what was needed in healthcare and science research and development. And that was something I was very, very interested in. If you want to know what it was like living there, all foreigners, depending on the reason for their being there, were assigned to a hotel. There was no living in houses. And as a business person, we were assigned to the Peking Hotel. And probably another 80, 100 Americans were living there. And we would all go out exploring during the day in our, our particular pursuits and fields of business and come back and sit around like being in a dorm, sit around in the coffee shop at night, exchanging what we've learned and gleanings. And it was an extremely exciting time. I was captivated by the fact that China was sort of left behind for the last 20 years in terms of both economic and technological development. And to have an idea that I might be part of a bridge to improve the lot of that quarter of the population of the earth, even if it was just a little bit of an impact, I was all in. Wow. That's great. That's just uh, amazing. I'm going to come back to some of those elements that got you interested in the, the beginning when we talk about where we're going, because we still need to get young people excited about China and, mm -hmm. and the relationship. But I was just curious, you know, with, in regard to like what healthcare was like for people in those early years. I, I didn't get to China until 1988, but when I was there, I had these headaches and I don't know why I did. I went to the local clinic on our campus and they handed me this uh, little powder and said, put it in hot water. And I, I did that. It didn't cure my headaches, but they then tried acupuncture and that was Fun. I've got pictures of needles coming out of my head. And I know that these things, uh, that there's a long history of Chinese traditional medicine, but it, did, it, didn't, it didn't work on, on me, but I was uh, enjoyed and appreciated going through the experience. But for your average person in the late 70s, early 80s, what was their experience that, you, that they would encounter with the healthcare system that maybe got you inspired eventually to get into the field? Yeah, so my first uh, foray into healthcare in China was from the perspective of understanding what was lacking in the Chinese healthcare system. And on my first visit to what was at the time and perhaps still considered the best public hospital in the country, I it, it was really overcrowded. Doctors were working really, really hard and with no tools. So they were proud to show off the, the 1940s GE refrigerator and a Russian x-ray machine. And it was really, really sad because if you saw where the technology and the tools of healthcare had come in the West, not having any access to those things was really startling and it became a calling. And first working for the trading company that I was hired for and then Later on, because that company was sold and they were no longer interested in my part of the business, 
taking it on our own, it was so sounding of Chindex, we began helping China, Chinese hospitals to import the technology that they needed. And you can't do modern medicine without tools of modern medicine. And it was clear that Chinese people were really, really losing out. And as such, we were able to bring the first real-time ultrasound, patient monitors, electrosurgical generators, eventually the first MRI machines, and later on the first surgical robots to China. And that was before most of the big American companies were, were there, and there was no other route to importing those things. So our company prospered, but it was really inspirational to watch how healthcare was transformed, even considering perhaps we had a little bit of role in it. And I think the Chinese government also had a focus on improving healthcare for people. And over the time from 1979 to now, for example, life expectancy in China went up from 66 years old to about 78 years old now. And, you know, 11 years increase in life expectancy, maternal and um, and infant mortality um, was reduced like by tenfold and, and really impressive improvement. And I don't think that that improvement could have happened without the participation of, of technology, which China didn't have at the time. It's really an important story. And the improvement of the health circumstances of Chinese radically affects the health circumstances of the world, given how large China is. And, and, and so this is no small contribution. China is dominated by state-owned or affiliated hospitals in a healthcare system, from the procurement to the provision of the healthcare and, and even taking care of, of people in their older age. There are private companies eventually, but very small, very few. And so where did you come up with the crazy idea that you wanted to come have your own, have a private hospital that would serve the Chinese population and, and others who, who lived in China, given that the lay of the land looked like you would not be able to compete whatsoever. So, yeah. So after 10 years of bringing hardware to Chinese hospitals, it became increasingly apparent to me that good healthcare was not only about hardware and that there was so much about the, the approach to patient care, uh, workflows, management, philosophy of patient care, ethics, standards, quality systems, et cetera, that went into uh improvement in healthcare. And I knew I couldn't sell that at the time to Chinese hospitals. And at the same time, there were more and more multinationals coming to China, more and more foreign nationals living in China, many of whom had good insurance. And at the same time, through the 90s, we were bringing delegations of Chinese policymakers and hospital presidents to the United States to see how we run our hospitals and healthcare systems and the good parts of that. And they would come to hospitals in the United States and they would walk in the door and they would be incredulous like, oh, how do they get it to not even smell like a hospital? And this is great and that's great, but we, we can't, it would never work in China. We can't implement it here. So I took that as a bit of a challenge. And although I didn't know how big the Chinese market would ever be for private high-end healthcare, I knew there was a small but ready market in the international community in Beijing and possibly Shanghai at the time. So we decided that that was definitely the way we wanted to go. And even starting with only 
a very small facility to give care to the international community. We thought it, it could be a model that could be looked at and certain things could be gleaned that perhaps the public system would do well to adopt. I also had some experiences as patients at the time. And one of the things that that drove home is that the Chinese system was extremely stovepiped and specialized. And there was very little general medicine, very little preventive care, and very little continuity of care. So if you went to a, even the best of the Chinese hospitals, the international clinic or the clinic for high cadre, you were asked by the receptionist what specialty you were going to see. And as a layman and not as a physician, I was really impressed that Chinese patients were able to self-diagnose and triage themselves into the right neighborhood. So there were a lot of things that we thought could be done differently in terms of partnering with family practice or general practitioners with patients for ongoing preventative care, like delivering care for childbirth in family-centered childbirth rooms, like pain control in childbirth, like making it possible to make appointments through call centers or, or online now. Um, for your for your outpatient visits, like not having patients be hospitalized three or four days in advance of a elective surgery for testing, and also doing more and more minimally invasive surgery. There was a lot of things that right from the beginning we were doing that wasn't being done in China, and much more quickly than we ever expected. Many Chinese patients became interested in what we were doing, and although we started out our patient base being 99.9% um, foreign, it's now almost 80% Chinese. And so it's also an interesting proof to the government that people are willing to pay for quality and convenience in healthcare. And I think as such, the government has allowed us to showcase some of our approaches and adapted some of our approaches where they could in the public system. That's just amazing. I had right down the question to ask about the proportion of of customers who are, or, or, um, who are from or China citizens. Yeah. That really says a lot that your primary customer base now are Chinese, not foreigners living in, in China. People have to have a lot of trust when they go see a doctor and it can also be quite costly. Uh, and so that you've been able to overcome potential worries, not just from officials, but from Chinese who were there. So that says a lot. So since you started, you had I think Beijing United Family Hospital, you've opened up other hospitals in other cities, clinics. Can you talk a little bit about, just make sure that we've got our arms around what the growth story has been? And then maybe, are there is there a case or two of, of someone who's come to receive treatment, whether it's for a, a problem that they have or about preventative care or something else that puts a face on this transition that you've helped usher in? So yeah, we started out very, very, very small with less than 30 beds, 60 nurses, 20-something doctors, and have since grown to now 11 hospitals, four in Beijing, three in Shanghai, one in Guangzhou, one in Shenzhen, one in Tianjin and Qingdao. In addition, in each of those cities, we mostly have satellite clinics that make outpatient care more convenient, located close to where our patients live, with a heavy emphasis on preventative care but also with expertise in specific areas of, of specialty care, be it cancer or pediatrics or internal medicine, orthopedics, et cetera. 
In terms of some examples, one very interesting example that I think highlights, well, I'll give you two interesting examples. One early on, maybe a couple of months after we opened, a Chinese couple came in, she very pregnant, saying, I want to have a baby here, seven months or six months, I think she was six months pregnant. And we said, it's quite expensive. Looked like they'd just come off a train and didn't, they didn't look very, very worldly. And uh, we said it's quite expensive. He opened up a suitcase full of cash <laughs> and um, said, where, so we said, they, they come from somewhere in Shandong. And we said, why do you want to come here to have a baby? We basically hadn't had any Chinese patients yet. And they said, because we've lost several babies pre- premature that I tend to deliver prematurely. And we've heard that you have great capabilities in this area. And we did have an international OBGYNs and pediatricians. And so we said, sure. And the lady did deliver prematurely. And the baby stayed in the hospital for like six months, yeah. but grew to be a healthy infant and um, now is a healthy young adult. So that's that was amazing. And it surprised me. I think uh, I, I wasn't expecting that so early on. That was one thing that I could, you know, in terms of a specific case that is very, very memorable for me. The other thing, interestingly, I think that the Chinese patient adaptation of, of our services started from people returning from abroad who had experience with other healthcare systems, mostly young p- people who were wealthy from either being employees or leaders of multinationals organizations in China or movie stars or soccer stars. Now, I think we've gone down to have also be able to care for, especially with the introduction of more and more commercial insurance available to Chinese people now, more white-collar professionals as well, but mostly younger people. But in the last, I'd say, three years, as our original younger patients are now getting into older years, the demographic, as the demographic in China is also aging, the demographic of our population is aging. And during COVID, many people who had trouble getting access in the public system or to their traditional providers came to us, perhaps out of desperation to start with. But because of our being able to care for them and because of many um, successful and happy outcomes, many have become our, our, our loyal patients. So, you know, that's, that's another thing. I mean, uh, thousands and thousands of people have received good care or millions of people and thousands um, had recovered from catastrophic diseases and also during COVID and before and after. But it's hard to talk about a lot of specific people situations. That's, that's really amazing, the, the growth and the change and, and how an individual visits has their entire life changed for the better. Let me turn now. You started to touch on it, the pandemic. So I visited last fall for six weeks when zero COVID was still in place. Obviously, I missed the first two and a half years when, you know, there was the initial lockdowns and then the opening domestically, but then the imposition. Of, but I was there as, you know, you still had to get tested to go to China. You had to be tested every other day. You had to uh, have your phone, get a code to enter buildings, the transportation. You were there throughout and could see how things evolved over the three years not speaking as someone that runs a healthcare organization, but just as a person living in China, what did that feel like to you? 
Well, I, I'll, I'll respond to that. And then I want to tell you what it felt like running a healthcare institute. Absolutely. Yeah. So we felt very privileged that after the first two or three months, life became extremely normal for us. I mean, even if we had to get tested every other day, it was not that difficult. It was more difficult for some people, but for people living in Beijing, especially if you were in proximity to a United Family facility, it was quite easy. And besides having to show your code, life was quite normal for most of those two and a half years. And to be fair, easier living in Beijing than Shanghai. But for a lot of that time, we watched the rest of the world and and felt super privileged to be in the protected environment that it felt like. Of course, things went very differently at the end when the policy shifted away from zero COVID. And of course, for people living in some cities where the lockdowns were more continuous and, and, and for longer time, things were very difficult for them before the end of zero COVID as well. Yeah, I, I mean, I noticed that the difference between when I went from Beijing to Shanghai. That first, I originally tried to go to China in last April and was uh, forced to delay my trip because of the Shanghai lockdown. But then when I finally got to Shanghai in October, the the mood was a lot different from Beijing because people had been at home for at least two two months, three like, two three, three months, months. Yeah. and um, they'd had family members or friends who had passed away or gotten ill or. And just the psychological trauma of being uh, closed up like that. In terms of, from the perspective of United Family Healthcare, how were you all able to navigate and help people? Well, let me um, start by contrasting our experience during SARS and our experience during COVID. During SARS, China's public health infrastructure was um, significantly less developed than it was um, at the start of COVID. At the same time, the U.S. had lots of public health professionals, officials, CDC people on the ground in China who had been on the ground for a while before that. So they were quite familiar with the, with the situation and had good relationships with their counterparts, also WHO. And because China was quite unprepared for um, what was happening during SARS, they were extremely open to input. And it was completely different in terms of once the problem is recognized and out in the open, it became a lot easier to talk about. And there were a lot better information flows between our CDC and the Chinese public health establishment, as well as they also gave us a lot of help in adapting our workflows and even physical plant to be able to safely take care of patients. The start of COVID, however, the amount, the number of U.S. public health experts who were on the ground in China had dwindled to less than a handful. And they also were people who had not been there for a long time. And so it didn't have strong relationships in the scientific community either. And because right from the beginning, unfortunately, the talk coming out of our president's office was very antagonistic. I think it became even more difficult for any conversation to to happen between our public health officials and Chinese public health officials. That having been said, the Chinese public health authorities on the ground hit the ground running. Once things were out in the open, they were in our hospital every day, updating us on the latest news, letting us know what they thought we could do to keep our patients safe and or what we had to do to keep our patients safe. 
And we really got some very useful guidance and it came at a cost because they were constantly updating the guidance and the standards and the requirements based on new learnings as, as things changed. So, you know, we had to uh, change around the workflow in our emergency rooms and fever clinics, find an extra CAT scanner just to be used in the fever clinic. So it definitely came at, at a cost, but we did keep our patients safe. And for, for the first few years, really didn't have any COVID cases, honestly. So when, you know, when we looked at, at the numbers of actual COVID positive cases, it kind of gelled with our experience. And we were, we were, of course, you know, testing many, 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 many people every day, not only our own patients, but we also had to volunteer for public testing points. So it gave me confidence in the actual um, numbers of positive cases. Post-COVID zero, the reported number of deaths and our experience did not necessarily match up. Sure. Let me let me jump in to just ask one question about what it was like during the most of the zero COVID period. It was a, a big debate about vaccines and access to vaccines. And I think a lot of consternation amongst the chattering class when I was in China and even from outside, e- even though there had been a, an arrangement between foreign developers of mRNA vaccines, the Chinese had signed a deal, but never got everything through testing or, or rolled out. And that People were worried that that would eventually translate into more illness and more lives lost. What is your your view about anxiety that Chinese officials seem to have about foreign vaccines and the um, evaluation of the consequences of, up until today, still not having mRNA vaccines for COVID be widely available in China? Vaccines have always been a very sensitive area in China, and there have been some events in the past that where vaccines went wrong and perhaps tainted vaccines um, and healthy people are hurt when vaccines go wrong. So contrary to the a little bit greater openness, openness in approving in general pharmaceuticals, which are aimed at treating sick people, one at a time, vaccines are are given in en masse. And if it goes wrong, a lot of healthy people can be hurt. I think that's where some of the sensitivity about vaccines come. I mean, we've seen also, you can look at it from a, a domestic industry protection perspective, not only for mRNA vaccines, but for example, for HPV vaccines, which is something I'm very, very interested in. And China approved foreign HPV vaccines probably 10 years after they should have or after the rest of the world had it available. And it means that for many more years, women will die of cervical cancer from not having had those vaccines. But so I'm not sure the reason. I mean, I know the reason even for medical institutions being approved to administer vaccines is very hard and sensitive and not in America. We get it at CBS or at the grocery store. But in China, you need to have a very high level of trust from the government to be able to to administer vaccines. So that certainly has something to do with it, but it has to go beyond that. And the delay, even after there was an agreement with Fosun to bring in vaccines, we were ready, you know, two years earlier. They, they had delivered a, the, the low temperature freezers to refrigerators to us and trained our nurses, and it kept getting pushed out, you know, we're going to have approval in three months, we're going to have approval in another three months, another three months. 
and it's never happened. I personally feel that China did a lot of good things during those first two and a half years of COVID. But I also think that there were lots of missed opportunities and not only making mRNA vaccines available, but also I would have liked to see a lot more public education in the importance of vaccination and a reassurance of, of to the population that the vaccines were safe and important. And because there was a lot of, just like there was vaccine skepticism in the United States, there was also a lot of vaccine skepticism, especially among the older generation that they ended up paying for after zero COVID policy changed. I can attest to that. I talked to lots of of friends when I was on the ground in China who were critical of of zero COVID, but they're also critical of of vaccines, very uh, highly skeptical. And they cited arguments, data, articles identical to vaccine skeptics in the United States. And that they go to the same websites, read the same information. And it was very different than what I encountered when I was in the region. Remember, I, I said that I couldn't make it to China in the spring, so I traveled nearby Japan, South Korea, it's in Taipei, and where I think there seems to be a greater adoption of some of the things that you suggested, very straightforward, ubiquitous public education campaigns and, and reassurance and talking to taxi drivers, they would proudly raise their fingers when you'd ask them, well, how many doses have you received and things like that. And in, in a very different kind of the conversation in China sounding much more like the conversation in the United States, which I totally did, did not expect. Let's shift gears a little bit because I, w- I want to bring this toward the present, but I've got one last sort of question about sort of things on the ground. And, and then I want to ask about U.S.-China relations. So because you're a company and you have, have grown, also, you know, the market access for healthcare in China has changed over time. And so the rules about ownership and participation in the market has changed. So I'm, I'm curious about how just your ownership structure has evolved and you know, to what extent has that been driven by the rules of what's permitted in China versus or what, what are sort of like good investment decisions, leaving aside regulatory questions? Yes. Okay. I understood, originally understood your question about ownership structure was private, public, prob- Oh, the, the system as a whole. Yeah. Oh, I- no, no. And you want to know about the hospital specifically? Right. So um, when we suggested to the Chinese government that we started talking to the Chinese government in 1992 about opening the first facility, they really reacted like um, we were off our rockers thinking about uh, a U.S. private for-profit company opening a healthcare facility in China. They couldn't imagine what our ulterior motive might have been because they couldn't have imagined it being a profitable potential. And yeah, and why, why didn't we want to do it? in the first place. I, I shared with you the reasons why I wanted to do it. But at the time, there were no real, the regulations were very, very limited, and there wasn't a real roadmap to do it. The only thing there was about foreign investment in healthcare that was clear was that you had to have a local domestic partner, and you had to, as a part partner, own over 50%. But it didn't specify the amount of ownership that needed to be local. Um, we ended up finding a local partner and, and sponsor was a company under the Chinese Academy of Medical Sciences, who was a 10% cooperative joint venture partner for our first hospital. And they they participated in the board as minority board seat. 
but never in operations. And that was what we were we we hoped for. They were always supportive to with government issues, but not really involved in operations. Since then, rules have changed. There was a window of time when it was possible to be 100% owner, and then the rules settled back down to needing a 30% domestic partner. There are some workarounds with investment through Hong Kong, and some special zones treat treat that ownership regulation differently. But in every case, we've always been uh, the majority owner, and we've always had management control, and that's never been interfered with, not with a party committee or government interference or interference from local partners. So, And we've always been law-abiding. And I think that our approach to healthcare has always fit the policy goals and initiatives of the Chinese government. The Chinese government's attitude toward private health care and high quality private health care has continued to improve over time. I think from the beginning, we proved that it was possible to benefit China and Chinese people by importing high quality health care models. And, and as such, the official government line continues to be that high quality private health care, including foreign invested health care, will continue to be an important supplement to the public system. We're in 2023, which seems to be a moment when U.S.-China relations are about as bad as they've been. Yes. And this, it must be incredibly anxiety producing to watch Beijing and Washington go back and forth. And not only because of the the broader geostrategic consequences, but also the day-to-day effect on potentially day-to-day business and people who might visit and decide not to use your services or suppliers or other things. So I was just curious, so from the ground level, from your day-to-day business, how, how does how do U.S.-China tensions reveal themselves? And looking broadly from a different angle, what's the way out with this? So far, the chill in the relationship isn't impacting our business. In fact, in the past few months, the government's gone far out of their way to make foreign companies, including American companies, feel welcome, holding roundtables, asking what our issues are, how can they be of help. In terms of the business environment for U.S. companies over time in China, it's not perfect. You know, as I said, we have a local ownership requirement of 30 percent, which isn't always ideal, for example. But I think thanks to the efforts over the past 20 years of including the U.S. government, private industry, USTR, Department of Commerce, things have gotten better, much better. Um, for market access and also IPR protection. That seems to not be so recognized here in Washington. But in fact, things have gotten much better for most U.S. companies and most sectors. Uh, lately, obviously, there are some sectors that are suffering from from this chill, especially in the tech space. But frankly, I'm not so worried about how the deterioration of the relationship affects my business, but I'm more worried about what seems to be a cold war possibly deteriorating into a hot war. And it seems to me that nothing should be more of a priority from both of our governments than fighting a war with China, which would be terrible for everyone, both of us, and not the least of which possibly for the people of Taiwan, which would possibly be the proximal cause or the stated cause for such a war. 
I'm not denying that we have issues of national security, including cybersecurity. But rather than looking for bilateral solutions, it seems that we're just answering each other tit for tat about each of our concerns, about the U.S. concerns for Chinese action. We're responding with similar retaliatory actions and arguing about who is the first to start the fight. I want to say that the benefits of collaboration in healthcare are definitely not a one-way street. We've gained so much from the collaboration with China as well. I mentioned the fact that having close familiarity with public health peers will help us um, not to have a worse outcome from SARS and in the future could help us from not having disastrous outcomes from future epidemics. But in addition, we've gotten a lot out of past collaborations. For example, in the 90s, we had a huge joint research interventional trial project on the use of folate for preventing neural, neural tube defect um, births. And as a result, we mandated the addition of folate to bread in the United States. And as a result of that, we reduced the number of births with neural tube defects, so-called spina bifida, by 30%, over 30%. And that came out of a joint research project. We also learned how to deal with malaria through Chinese artemisinin, total Chinese invention, and learned more about different kinds of stroke and how to deal with them because of the difference in epidemiology of stroke in China. And it's really important that we recognize, as you mentioned, that public health has no borders. And scientific development in healthcare benefits everybody. It's not only a benefit for one people or another. And we have to be really careful not to be selfish. Thanks so much. This worries me. Sure it does. It does. It should. One of the things I noticed when I was on the ground last fall is how few foreigners there were overall, but most importantly, how few young people there were from the United States. So I want to end where we started, which was about when you first got interested in China in 1972, a st stressful time in the middle of the Cold War, but you decided to take the plunge to learn about a, a world very different from your own. What's your advice to young Americans who are looking at these tensions, the possibility of war? What's your advice about why they should consider studying Chinese or going to China as opposed to doing something else that may be feel easier than, than that. Yeah. So I think that this is really scary that the number of students from the United States and China before COVID went from something like 3,000, almost 4,000 at its peak to 375 American students in China now. The cutoff of dialogue, government to government, for example, worries me. And I want to talk a little bit about that in a minute. But that's a worry for today and tomorrow and next week. But the lack of Americans studying China and learning about China and having firsthand on the ground experience is a worry for the following generations. It's a, it's, it's a worry for the future. If you look at the U.S. Um, current strategy of, of invest, align, compete, and cooperate where there might be some possibility, um, we're not going to be able to compete if we don't understand China. And I don't see how that understanding comes without, you know, we have such a, a strong cadre of smart people that get it. They're not always listened to now. 
here in the U.S. But in the future, we won't have that cadre of China experts to turn to to understand what's going on. So I'm hoping that no matter which side of the argument you're on, if you're a hawk or a dove or a, it's really important that we encourage young people to study about China, learn about China and go experience China for themselves. Important for our national security and our future competitiveness. That I, that same thing, um, well, it's not exactly the same thing, but I also worry about the fact that we don't have academics, scientists, engineers um, doing exchanges, especially in healthcare. The, this lack of uh, peer-to-peer communication and collaboration will hurt our development in all of these fields. So my understanding is that China graduates uh twice as many PhDs in science and technology than we do in the United States. And of the graduates in the United States, we have uh, 40% of them are foreign foreigners, not the least of which are Chinese. And for now, many of them are staying and contributing to our society. But as this becomes a less welcoming place for Chinese academics. Uh, many of them will come. And in fact, people now are considering going and doing their joint research in Europe and in England and not in the United States. And that will also hurt our competitiveness in the future, or maybe even today. This has been an amazing conversation. I've followed your work. My family has been helped and you've contributed a lot to the conversation today. And, and I admire your sense of adventure and risk-taking, your persistence and, and your vision. You're a, a real inspiration and a, a very important leader. So I'm really super grateful that you've been willing to spend some of your time with us talking about these critical issues, giving people a perspective of what it's like from someone who's been on the ground in China for so long in an area that's vital to everybody. There's so many lives that have been touched by your efforts. And so I just want to say thank you. Oh, it's a pleasure. And um, I also enjoyed talking um, with you about it. And I've learned so much from you over the years in your writings. Thanks for listening to China Field Notes. Stay up to date with our latest releases by following us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to great content. Until next time. <laughs>